All right, well, we are in part three of this series, Pioneer. And ultimately what we're saying is this, every single one of us is a pioneer, stepping into unknown and uncertain territory, hoping for a better future than yesterday, hoping for the confidence to pioneer without losing our mind to fear. And as we look forward, look for that confidence, here's, what it, here's where it's found. Confidence to pioneer comes from knowing that God is with us, for us and working through us in every situation and every circumstance of life. And so our confidence doesn't come from the situations and circumstances of life. Our confidence comes from above in every circumstance and every situation of life. And so we've been asking this question, what if your life and my life were marked by that kind of confidence? Like how would you live your life if you were absolutely confident that God is with you every moment, that he's for you every moment, that he's, that he's working through you in every single moment of your life? Because because chances are most of us would probably live significantly different lives if we carried that kind of confidence. And if that's where we found our confidence, then last week I thought was a really strong idea that confidence isn't really found in hoping God is on our side and in hoping that you know God is for whatever we decide to be for, that real confidence comes from knowing that we are on God's side, that we talked about the idea of surrender, that I choose his side over my side every single time, every single situation, every single circumstance, every agenda. It's his will, his agenda, his plan, and not mine. His will over my will. I give God my unconditional yes, and in doing so, I ultimately find my life in the hands of the one who knows best what to do with my life. So again, today we're going to continue asking the question, how would you live your life if you were absolutely confident that God is with you, for you, and capable of working through you? And to answer that question, we continue our look at the story of Joshua and his leadership of the nation of Israel. And we're going to jump right in today uh, to the text right where we left off last week. Where we left off last week, the Israelites had just recommitted themselves to God's side and were now on the march to Jericho. And on, on the march they, to Jericho, Joshua encountered the commander of the Lord's army. And he asked, you know, are you on our side or their side? Are you friend or foe? He said, I'm on neither side, but I am the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua said, so what do you have for me to, to do? I humbly submit myself to you because I want to be on the side of the Lord. And so as we get to uh, picking up right after that, we begin in, in Joshua chapter six, and it begins this way. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in. Now, a few things about Jericho that we need to understand. Chances are, even if you're not like real familiar with the Bible, you've maybe heard someone somewhere talk about Jericho. And there's one word usually connected to Jericho. And anyone, do, do anyone know what it is? It's the word walls. Yes, absolutely. If you guessed walls, you're correct. If you guessed anything else, you're unfortunately wrong, but you're still smart and I still like you, okay? Now I'm gonna get to the walls in just a second, but let me tell you for a second why they built the walls. Jericho was one of the first cities in any sort of modern context. In, in the ancient world, cities was a very, very loose term, but Jericho was one of the first true cities in the way that we would think of cities today. Most archaeologists believed around this time in history, they, they, there would, would roughly been about 40,000 people living in this one place, which was a massive city in, in, in those days. And the reason Jericho had become so fruitful and prosperous is that there was a really strong spring within the city that provided clean, fresh, consistent water for the people, for crops, for fruits, 
and for watering livestock. And in fact, when Moses sent the spies into the, into the land of Jericho and they came back from Jericho saying how great the crops were and how strong and healthy the people were, most people believe that the biggest reason for this and for their abundant crops and for their healthy livestock was with their supply of fresh, clean water, right? Now that tells us one thing. It tells us God promised the Israelites this place and God led them to this place and this moment. For God, this was not a random deal. This was on purpose. God had led them out of the wilderness, had led them out of Egypt, had led them out of slavery and out of survival mode of the wilderness and led them first to a place that would be a source of nourishment and refreshing and a place where strength could be built and developed. Now here's the lesson. Wherever God leads is good and is for our good. Wherever God leads is good and is for our good. It doesn't always come easy and sometimes there will be a struggle before we receive the good. And sometimes even the struggle is good for us because we learn about ourselves and we learn about our God. But where God leads is good and it is for our good. God led them to Jericho, a place where though there would be a struggle to obtain it, it was good. It was good for the people that lived there up to that point and it would be good for the Israelites as a place of nourishment and refreshing. Sometimes we, we get so afraid of where God may be leading us because where is unknown and what is unknown. And I just need to remind us that when God leads us, when God calls us, when God is calling you to somewhere new, when God is beginning a new season, when God is, is, is pushing you and challenging you and drawing you to a new season, when God has called you to something that is brand new to you, if it's brand new to you and it's terrifying to you, the good news is while it may be terrifying because it's unknown, if God has called you there, it is good and it will ultimately be for your good. You can take that to the bank that what God has for you, it is good and it is for your good. Now, onto the walls. If you have that kind of water source that, that is able to sustain an entire, entire city nation at that point, and the water source has helped your city to flourish and your people to be strong and healthy, what might be true about that type of resource in the ancient world? Other people want it, right? Like, like, that, like that seems like it's a very obvious conclusion. So why did the people of Jericho build their walls? They built their walls to defend their way of life, to defend their people, to defend their source of water and their source of strength. Many historians actually peg these walls as the first structure in human history built specifically as a military defense. It's kind of an interesting historical fact. Now indulge me for one more moment because I spent some time studying the walls of Jericho and I came away with a much different and much better picture than I always had of what, just what these walls might have looked like. So I'm gonna put a visual on screen, a couple of visuals on screen. When we, when we look to where Israel would have been compared to where Jericho was, Israel is on the plains surrounding Jericho. Jericho is up on a hill with a 46 foot elevation from the plain of, from the plains of Jericho. Now in between the plains of Jericho and the actual 46 foot elevation of Jericho, there was actually not just walls, but there were one wall. There was actually four separate walls because as archeologists have uncovered, each wall of Jericho, there was two walls of Jericho, two complete sets of Jericho, each one about a third of the way up. So one third, two, you know, zero thirds, one third, two third, three thirds is now four, is 46 feet up. And every third of the way up, they built an 18 foot wall 
with a nine foot wall as a retaining wall meant to strengthen the external wall that was built on this plane. So you have 18 feet walls, each supported by another 19 foot wall. And each of these sets of walls was six feet thick of walls. These were not walls built of two by fours or even of our modern day, like, wow, this would be sturdy two by sixes. These were six foot thick structures. The walls of Jericho were incredibly high, incredibly thick. This was not some like, whoa, ancient structures aren't really that dependable. These were incredibly thick, dependable walls meant to keep enemies out, meant to keep invaders out, meant to keep people from getting what you have. And so when we talk about the gates and the walls of Jericho, that's what we are talking about. It's pretty daunting. It's pretty intimidating. And the description also reminds me of how they designed like Helm's Deep in the Lord of the Rings movie. So, and, and, and that's just me being a nerd and enjoying the Lord of the Rings. But, but anyway, here's, here's what happened when the, when the Israelites got there. So everyone in Jericho is terrified because they have heard about what God has done for the Israelites as he brought them in. And verse two tells us this, but the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king and all its strong warriors. Like, great, what a wonderful promise. God has given us the land. And then God tells them how, and they're like, I wish he hadn't told us how. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of of, of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people shout as long as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. This is why God wanted to know ahead of time if Joshua was really obedient to any and every command and plan of God. I think God knew he was going to give Joshua this command and this plan, and God knew it was ridiculous, right? Like, so he tested Joshua's obedience level and willingness to follow with what we talked about last week. Like, just think about this, with, with, with all due respect to God, and I'm, I'm a pastor, so I, I'm very nervous in saying this because I worry that God may strike me with lightning, and if, if God strikes me with lightning, you won't be seeing the rest of this video, okay? But this is a dumb plan. Like, this is, a, this is a dumb plan. Like, if you were trying to figure out how to go to battle with this city that has these walls as defenses, and your Uncle Jasper walked up and said, here's the plan. Have everyone walk around the city quietly every day for six days. It's going to freak everyone out. Then on the seventh day, walk faster so you can walk around it seven times. Then blow trumpets and yell, and those walls are coming down. You'd be like, hey, Jasper, I know marijuana is legal in the state, but you need to put it down. And if you're going to smoke that much weed, you probably shouldn't be giving military advice. Okay, like, like, like that's what you would tell your uncle Jasper. And God comes and he says, here's the plan. Here's the plan. So Joshua, I mean, he's listened to this plan that seems insane, but he had seen the hand of God at work. He had seen God's plan succeed when they made no sense before. He had seen God stop a flooded, fast-flowing river, and had seen God bring them victories in battle. They had no business winning. And so God gives him what seems like a ridiculous plan, and he gathers the guys to explain God's plan. So Joshua So Joshua called together the priests and said, take up the ark of the Lord's covenant and assign seven priests to walk in front of it, each carrying a ram's horn. 
Then he gave orders to the people, march around the town, and the armed men will lead the way in front of the ark of the Lord. After Joshua spoke to the people, the seven priests with the ram's horns started marching in the presence of the Lord, blowing the horns as they marched. And the ark of the Lord's covenant followed behind them. Some of the armed men in, uh, marched in front of the priests with the horns and some behind the ark, with the priests continually blowing the horns. Do not shout. Do not even talk, Joshua commanded. Not a single word from any of you until I tell you to shout. Then shout, which is an amazing stroke of leadership. Try that with your children the next time you get in the car. See if you can get them to make it 10 minutes. He made it six days. Do not talk. Do not make a sound until I tell you to shout complete silence as you walk around the city. So the ark of the Lord was carried around the towns once that day, and then everyone returned to, the, to spend the night in that camp. At this, Joshua's friend Chris was like, what the heck? This is all we're doing today? I thought we came to take a city not to be mall walkers. Okay, that last verse is not actually in the Bible. That's just how I would have responded after day one of that plan. Can you imagine the frustration of the people at this plan? Like it's one thing when they heard it, but then they actually start implementing it and they probably even felt more ridiculous and more unproductive. Like we did what God asked us to do and nothing happened and we went home. That's, that's the plan for today. And sometimes that's the plan for today. That what you do may look unproductive, but obedience is never unproductive. Obedience always accomplishes whatever it is that God wants to accomplish. And so it may not look like it did anything on the outside, but obedience always brings a result. Now, verse 12. Joshua got up early the next morning. The priests again carried the ark of the Lord. The seven priests with the ram's horns marched in front of the ark of the Lord, blowing their horns. Again, the armed men marched, in, marched both in front of the priests with the horns and behind the ark of the Lord. All this time, the priests were blowing their horns. On the second day, they again marched around the town once and returned to the camp. They followed this pattern for six days. Like you do that one day and you're annoyed. You do that two days, three days, four days and see nothing and see no progress and the walls aren't coming down. Like this is where rational people give up. This is, this is where I, I feel pretty, pretty strongly that I would give up, right? Like, and after six days, you're wondering, is this even right? Did we hear from God? Was this even God's plan to begin with? Did Joshua eat some bad pizza and have a funny dream? Maybe Joshua began listening to his Uncle Jasper again, and he thought it was God. Maybe Uncle Jasper was sitting outside his tents, and he does a really good impression of God. I don't know. Maybe this whole thing is actually just a dumb idea, and we're dumb for going along with it, because the people up there, the people in Jericho, they were terrified at, at, of us, but now they're just laughing at us. Okay, this though is one of those things in the Bible that people point to and have developed an entire idea around that, that six isn't known as the, as the num number of God's completion, right? Seven is, if, you, if you're familiar with what, what's called biblical numerology, and I don't know that I'm like really, really into that, but there seems to be some, some stuff to that. If you've never really heard of this idea before, there's an idea that there is sometimes significant meaning attached to different numbers in the Bible. Interestingly, when it comes to those numbers, six is often attached to the devil or to temptation. And so on day six, imagine the natural inclination or the temptation to give up at this point. God has promised that something is going to happen day seven, but after six days of seeing nothing happen, can you imagine the temptation to give up 
the temptation to let go, the temptation to not get up and not go out and march and not do what God commanded another time. Imagine temptation and a voice inside their heads going, see, following God's plan has made you look stupid and weak. You should give up. Don't go march. Don't go follow Joshua. Joshua isn't listening to God because obviously God's not doing anything on your behalf. And if Joshua was listening to God, something would have happened by now. It hasn't worked six days. Surely it's not going to work on day seven. I mean, I don't know what this, what, this, what this looks like for you, but it might look like you've been trying and trying and trying and your marriage hasn't worked out the way you hoped it would. Maybe it's time to give up. It might be you've been working hard to overcome an addiction or a struggle and you haven't been able to find the freedom that you've been seeking. So why keep trying? Why fight one more day? Just give up and give in. It might be that you've been working so hard for the good of someone else and everything you try to do for their good, they resist and just make terrible choices over and over and over. And so after a while you think, why bother? They're not gonna change. They're never gonna be different. And everything I try just blows in, blows up in my face. And I just wanna remind you that while six is the number that's, that often often is attached to, to, to the devil and to temptation. There is another number that follows six, which tends to be the, known as the number of God's completion, and that's seven. And into all of that, I think God gives us this story as a reminder that he didn't call us to six, he calls us to seven. He didn't call them to six, he called them to seven. He didn't call us until, until we feel like stopping, he called us until it's completed. And into that, I just want to encourage you today and challenge you today, while we all kind of know where this story is going, when God calls to seven, don't you dare stop at six. When God calls you to seven, when God calls you to finish what's, what he started, when God calls you to a place of obedience, when God calls you to a place of surrender, when God calls you to go, 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 and don't stop, we don't stop. We don't stop at six because it got hard. We don't stop at six because it's more difficult than we thought. We don't stop at six because it hasn't happened yet. When God calls us to seven, we keep going until we see seven. Since, he know, since we know he's faithful, we stay faithful. Since we know what he's promised, we keep pushing until we see it come to pass. We don't stop at six. We keep going until we see God's seven. And if you're like, oh, okay, so if God calls me to seven, like, this isn't a numbers thing. This is until we see what God wants for us, we don't stop. Until we reach the place that God has for us, we don't stop. I don't feel like I'm where God wants me to be. Then don't stop now. I don't think that my marriage is the way, the way that God wants it to be. Then don't stop short. If you're going through hell, don't stop there. If you're not where you feel like God wants you to be, if you haven't reached the place of peace in the new that God has called you to, to be, don't stop until you reach where God wants you to be. If God has called you to seven, don't you dare stop at six. Now, Luckily for them and lucky, luckily for us, so we can be inspired by their story, they didn't stop at six. They pushed to seven. On the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched around the town as they had done before. But this time they went around the town seven times. The seventh time around, as the priests surrounded the long blast, sounded the long blast on their horns, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town, Jericho, and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and the others in her house will be spared, for she protected our spies. Verse 18, do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you will be in trouble on the camp of Israel. 
Everything made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord and must be brought into his treasury. Now, you take enough college-level ancient history classes, and one of the arguments that will be made against the historical accuracy of the Bible actually comes from Jericho. See, the first archaeologist to identify Jericho in the late 60s, maybe early 70s, found a spot and pretty quickly concluded that the biblical story of Joshua and Jericho was just a myth because she didn't see evidence that anything happened the way the Bible described it. Now, it's amazing what you cannot find when you set out with an agenda to disprove the, the, the Bible as inaccurate. Okay, many other teams have gone back since and found significant evidence pointing the other way that the story actually did happen. They found very large rock and brick and mud pieces scattered as if they had fallen apart, as if they had fallen on top of each other, that had ash and cinder 1.5, a foot and a half into the six foot wall, which means it was an incredibly hot, long lasting fire. They found grain jars burned with the grain still inside, which furthers the narrative that Israel didn't take what God had told them to destroy, but that they burned everything with fire and that this wasn't a long protracted siege where people were diving into their, into their storehouses and into what had been stored for, for a long-term battle. This happened instantly. The walls fought, fell instantly, and Israel actually did destroy. They did not take from the storehouses of Jericho. They did what God had told them to do. They destroyed. And so here's what happened. When the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly, suddenly, all at once, not a protracted siege, suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed, or that word collapsed. They fell flat. They fell beneath itself. They dropped on itself and piled up on each other. And the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. So the Lord was with Joshua and his reputation spread throughout the land. And they won an incredible victory God's way. They won an incredible victory out of a ridiculous plan. They won an incredible victory that could not have been won with human strength, but with God's plan and God's power at work in them, for them, working through them. They were able to achieve and obtain a victory that they could never have won in their power or in anyone else's. And the bottom line today, as we once again ask the question, what would your life look like if you were absolutely confident that God is with you, that he's for you, and that he's working through you? Here's what your life would look like. It would look like absolute confidence in God leads to unreasonable obedience to God. That if you have unshakable confidence, absolute confidence that God is with you, that he's for you, and that he's working in and through you, you would have un unbelievable, unreasonable obedience to the God who is with you, for you, and working through you. See, unreasonable obedience means that whatever God says, I'm in. No matter if I think it's ridiculous, no matter if I think it's hard, no matter if I think it can work, if God says it, I'm in. Unreasonable obedience means that since I believe God knows best, I also believe he knows best for me and I'll follow his lead. And it means I believe that what he has is best and it's good and it's for my good. So I'll go where he says. Unreasonable obedience means I'll trust and follow in the big and the huge and I'll follow in the tiny details as well. Unreasonable obedience means that until God says stop, I keep going 
going. Unreasonable obedience means that when things aren't working out and I'm not seeing progress, I keep following and I stay faithful to what God commanded because I know he's wise and I know he's faithful. Absolute confidence in God, the way that you would live your life, the way that I should live my life. If I'm absolutely confident that God is with me and that he's for me and that he's working through me would mean that I would follow through with unreasonable obedience to the God who is with me and the God who is for me and the God who is working through me. And that's what we see in the life of Joshua. That's what we see in the life of the nation of Israel. And because of their unreasonable obedience, not just the unreasonable obedience of one man, but the unreasonable obedience of an entire nation of people who managed to stay silent for six days, walking around the walls of Jericho until someone said shout. And then they got to shout one time and then they went home. Their unreasonable obedience to a plan that didn't make any sense. Unreasonable obedience, again, not just to Joshua, but to an entire nation of people. And God came through with a victory that brought them into something so good that would sustain them for the rest of their journey into the promised land. It's unbelievable. And I'm just telling you that if you will live with that kind of obedience, God will bring about exactly what he has promised for you what he has called you to and what he has for you and what he has for you. It is good and it is for your good. And so two words, if we're going to embrace unreasonable obedience, here's two words that I think should characterize us as we live out unreasonable obedience to the God who is with us, the God who is for us and the God who is working through us. And these two words are persistent and faithful, persistent and faithful. Persistent, meaning I won't stop until until God legitimately tells me to stop. See, the opposite of persistent is sporadic. See, our feelings and emotions will tell us to obey sporadically. Our faith and confidence in God informs us to obey consistently. Our feelings and our emotions tell us to obey when we see results. Our faith and confidence in God informs us to obey until we see the results. Does that make sense? Our feelings and emotions tell us to obey when we feel like it. Our faith and confidence tells us to keep going because of what it will feel like to see God move on our behalf. Our feelings and our emotions tell us to love others when they deserve it. Our faith and confidence in God, it teaches us to love others despite what they deserve. A persistent obedience, a persistent obedience that goes beyond our feelings, that, that, by the way, can acknowledge what you feel, but can choose to move beyond what you feel. Does that make sense? That acknowledges, this is what I feel. I feel that they don't deserve it. But while they don't deserve it, God has called me to love and to serve regardless. That even though I don't feel like, like spending time with God right now, that even though I don't feel like being the spiritual leader of my home, this is still what I'm called to. And so I don't obey when I feel like it. I don't follow God's leadership when I feel like it. I don't follow God's leadership when it's convenient. I follow it consistently. I follow it persistently. And I do what God would have me to do every moment of every day to the best of my abilities. I want to follow persistently. I want to obey persistently. I want to be a persistent, someone who keeps going and keeps obeying. And then the second word is faithful. Faithful means I'm going to be persistent about the right things. Like, I don't know if you know this, but you can be persistent about doing the wrong things. I mean, that's what an addiction is after all, right? 
It's that, that, that's what many of us are naturally good at, right? It's being persistent about the wrong things. Faithful means that I'll persistently love my wife, my, my wife like Christ loved the church and give myself for her. Faithful means I'll persistently pray big prayers over my family and my city and my church and my loved ones, believing that God wants to do big things in their lives. Faithful means I'll persistently influence others for Christ and do everything, any, anything and everything short of sin so that people can see a savior through my life. Faithful means I'll persistently be at church and small group because God knows I need community and encouragement and sometimes a little direct redirection. Faithful means that I will not only pray because when, when I feel like it, but faithful means that I will pray so that, so that the children in my home see a lifestyle of prayer. Faithful means that I don't just show up at church because I know it's good for me. I show up at church with my family because I know it's good for our, for our family. Faithful means that I don't give when it's convenient. Faithful means that I give because it's something that God has called me to and I want to be obedient. Faithful means I'm persistent in all the right things. And so faithful is this idea that I want to know, not, I want to hear from God. I want to sense God calling, God's calling and sense God's leadership. And then I want to stay, stay faithful to actually doing those things over and over and over again and watch what God does in my life and through my life and for my life and for my family as I stay faithful to him because the God who calls me to be faithful, he's faithful to me. And so here's the thing. We're, let's be, I want to challenge you today, encourage you. Let's be persistent. Let's be faithful. Some of you, like you're, 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 you're like, that thing about moving past your feelings, it, like if I started to do that, that would change my life. It may just be the thing that changes your life. And that's a choice that we get to make. And that persistence is something that we develop over time. But you can start by choosing it today. And faithfulness is something that we choose over every day. So let's choose it today. And, and, and here's the question that I want to ask as we close out today. What might God do on the other side of your persistent, faithful, unreasonable obedience? And the answer is who knows? I mean, who knows? Chances are there's not going to be a city that God gives you with a spring flowing that provides for 40,000 people. Like, like chances are there's no Jericho-sized victory for you. I, I mean, but maybe there is. But, but here's the thing. I want to find out. I, I want to find out what's on the other side of my unreasonable, persistent, and faithful obedience. I want to find out what's on the other side for my family of my persistent and faithful and obedient and, and unreasonable obedience to God. I want to find out for our church what God does on the other side of our unreasonable, persistent, and faithful obedience to his call and his plan and his mission for our church. I want you to find out in your singleness, in your family, in your early family life, in your looking at retirement life, in your empty nest life, I want you to find out and for you to see with your eyes what it is that God has for you and what he will do for you and how he will stay faithful to you and the, and, the, and the good, bountiful things that he has for you on the other side of your faithfulness and your persistence and your unreasonable obedience to what he has for you and what he has for your family and what he has for the next generation coming behind you and what he has for 
someone that you may not even have on your radar yet, but is barely getting into your workplace and they need a friend and they need someone to show them Jesus. I want you to see what's on the other side of all of that. And so for us to see what's on the other side of our persistent, faithful, unreasonable obedience, we have to choose to be persistent, to be faithful, and to be people of unreasonable obedience. And if we'll do that, we will get to see with our eyes what God has for us. And I want that for you, like I want that for me. So let's choose it today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy and your wisdom. Thank you that for so many of us right now, there's, there's a call to something new and to some new season, to some new season of family life, of, of career, of whatever it is that we may be stepping in. Thank you for where you are calling. Thank you for where you're leading. Thank you for where you're directing and where you're guiding. And God, I just simply t- pray today and I thank you that The truth of this story is that where you're leading us and where you're calling us, it is good and it is for our good. And while there may be difficulty and there may be struggle and there may be battle to get there, God, thank you that what you have for us is good and is for our good. And thank you that your plan is good even when it seems crazy and it seems ridiculous and it seems like it can't work. Thank you that your plan is good and is for our good. And so God, today I pray that you would give us the wisdom and courage to be persistent and faithful, and to be people of unreasonable obedience. And God, I thank you that as we choose to be those people, you will see that through, and you will be faithful to be the God that you always have been, and you will be a God who leads us towards what is good and what is for our good, and you will achieve and accomplish for us and be for us things that we cannot even begin to imagine. So God, would you do for us what what we can't do for ourselves, but what you can would you show yourself to be faithful? Would you show yourself to be the God of, who's perseverantly faithful to us and perseverantly good to us and perseverantly strong on our behalf? And God, I can't wait to see what miracles and what, what stories of, of unbelievable provision come out of our obedience and perseverance and faithfulness to you. I pray this all in Jesus' strong name. Amen.